Chapter 7a of The Sheik. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maprard. The Sheik by E. M. Hull. Chapter 7a. Diana came into the living room one morning about a week after the arrival of the Vicomte de Saint-Hubert. She had expected to find the room empty, for the sheik had risen at dawn and ridden away on one of the distant expeditions that had become so frequent, and she thought his friend had accompanied him. But as she parted the curtains between the two rooms, she saw the Frenchman sitting at the little writing-table, surrounded by papers and writing quickly, loose sheets of manuscript littering the floor around him. It was the first time that they had chanced to be alone, and she hesitated with a sudden shyness. But Saint-Hubert had heard the rustle of the curtain, and he sprang to his feet with a courteous bow that proclaimed his nationality. "'Your pardon, madame, do I disturb you? Tell me if I am in the way. I am afraid I have been very untidy,' he added, laughing apologetically." and looking at the heap of closely written sheets strewing the rug. Diana came forward slowly, a faint color rising in her face. I thought you had gone with Monseigneur. I had some work to do, some notes that I wanted to transcribe before I forgot myself what they meant. I write vilely. I have had a hard week, too, so I begged a day off. I may stay. You are sure I do not disturb you? His sympathetic eyes and the deference in his voice brought an unexpected lump into her throat. She signed to him to resume his work and passed out under the awning. Behind the tent, the usual camp hubbub filled the air. A knot of Arabs at a little distance were watching one of the rough riders schooling a young horse, noisily critical and offering advice freely undeterred by the indifference with which it was received. Others lounged past, engaged on the various duties connected with the camp, with the eastern disregard for time that relegated, till tomorrow, everything that could possibly be neglected today. Near her, one of the older men, more rigid in his observances than the generality of Ahmed bin Hassan's followers, was placidly absorbed in his devotions, prostrating himself and fulfilling his ritual with a sublime lack of self-consciousness of the Mohammedan devotee. Outside his own tent, the valet and Henri were sitting in the sun, Gaston on an upturned bucket, cleaning a rifle, and his brother stretched full length on the ground, idly flapping at the flies with a duster with which he had been polishing the vicomte's riding boots. Both men were talking rapidly with frequent little bursts of gay laughter. The Persian hound was lying at their feet. He raised his head as Diana appeared, and, rising, went to her slowly, rearing up against her with a paw on each shoulder, making clumsy efforts to lick her face, and she pushed him down with difficulty, stooping to kiss his shaggy head. She looked away across the desert beyond the last palms of the oasis. A haze hung round about, shimmering in the heat, and blurring the outline of the distant hills. 
A tiny breeze brought the acrid smell of camels close to her, and the creaking whine of the tackling over the well sounded not very far away. Diana gave a little sigh. It had all grown so familiar. She seemed to have lived no other life beside this nomad existence. The years that had gone before faded into a kind of dim remembrance, the time when she had travelled ceaselessly round the world with her brother seemed very remote. She had existed then, filling her life with sport, unconscious of the something that was lacking in her nature, and now she was alive at last, and the heart whose existence she had doubted was burning and throbbing with a passion that was consuming her. Her eyes swept lingeringly around the camp, with a very tender light in them. Everything she saw was connected with and bound up in the man who was lord of it all. She was very proud of him, proud of his magnificent physical abilities, proud of his hold over his wild, turbulent followers, proud with the pride of primeval woman in the dominant man ruling his fellow men by force and fear. The old Arab had finished his prayers and rose leisurely from his knees, salaaming with a broad smile. All the tribesmen smiled on her, and would go out of their way to win a nod of recognition from her. She faltered a few words in stumbling Arabic in reply to his long, flowery speech, and, with a little laugh, beat a hasty retreat into the tent. She paused beside the vicomte. "'Is it another novel?' she asked shyly indicating the steadily increasing pile of manuscript. He turned on his chair, resting his arms on the rail, twirling a fountain pen between his fingers, and smiled at her as she curled up on the divan with Kopec, who had followed her into the tent. No, madame, something more serious this time. It is a history of this very curious tribe of Ahmeds. They are different in so many ways from ordinary Arabs. They have been a race apart for generations. They have beliefs and customs peculiarly their own. You may, for instance, have noticed the singular absence among them of the strict religious practices that hold, among other Mohammedans, Ahmed bin Hassan's tribe worship first and foremost their sheikh, then the famous horses for which they are renowned, and then, and then only, Allah. Is Monsignor a Mohammedan? Saint-Hubert shrugged. He believes in God, he said evasively, turning back to his writing. Diana studied him curiously as he bent over his work. She smiled when she thought of the mental picture she had drawn of Saint-Hubert before he came, and contrasted it with the real man under her eyes. During the week that he had been in the camp, he had forced her liking and compelled her confidence by the sympathetic charm of his manner. He had carried off a difficult position with delicacy and savoir-faire that had earned him her gratitude. He had saved her a hundred humiliations with a tact that had been as spontaneous as it had been unobtrusive, and they had the bond between them of the common love they had for this strange leader of a strange tribe. What had been the origin of the friendship between these utterly dissimilar men? a friendship that seemed to go back to the days of their boyhood. The question intrigued her, and she pondered over it, 
lying quietly on the divan, smoothing the hound's huge head resting on her knee. The vicomte wrote rapidly for some time, and then flung down his pen with an exclamation of relief, gathered up the loose sheets from the floor, and, stacking them in an orderly heap on the table, swung round on his chair again. He looked at the girl's slender little figure lying with the unconsciously graceful attitude of a child against the heaped-up cushions. Her face bent over the dog's rough gray head, and he felt an unwanted emotion stirring in him. The quick sympathy that she had aroused from the first moment of seeing her had given place to a deeper feeling that moved him profoundly, and with it a chivalrous desire to protect, a longing to stand between her and the irremediable disaster that loomed inevitably ahead of her. She felt his concentrated gaze and looked up. You have done your work? All I can do at the moment. Henri must unravel the rest. He has a passion for hieroglyphics. He is an invaluable person. I could never get on without him. He bullied me when we were boys together. At least, that is what I called it. He called it amusing Monsieur le Vicomte. And for the last fifteen years he has tyrannized over me wholeheartedly. He laughed and snapped his fingers at Kopeck, who whined and rolled his eyes in his direction, but did not lift his head from Diana's knee. There was a pause, and Diana continued fondling the hound absently. I have read your books, monsieur, all that Monseigneur has here, she said at last, looking up gravely. He gave a little bow with a few murmured words that she did not catch. Your novel interested me she went on, still stroking the hound, as if the nearness of the great beast helped her. As a rule, novels bore me. The subjects they deal with have been of no interest to me, but this one gripped me. It is unusual, it is wonderful, but is it real? She had spoken dispassionately with the boyish candor that was characteristic, not complimenting an author on a masterpiece, but stating a fact simply as it appeared to her. Saint-Hubert leaned forward over the back of his chair. In what way, real? he asked. She looked at him squarely. Do you think there really exists such a man as you have drawn, a man who could be as tender, as unselfish, as faithful as your hero? Saint-Hubert looked away, and, picking up his pen, stabbed idly at the blotting-pad drawing meaningless circles and dots with a slow shrug. The scorn in her voice and the sudden pain in her eyes hurt him. Do you know such a man, monsieur, or is he wholly a creature of your imagination? He completed a complicated diagram on the sheet of blotting paper before answering. I do know a man who, given certain circumstances, has the ability to develop into such a character, he said eventually, in a low voice. She laughed bitterly. Oh, then you are luckier than I. I am not very old, but during the last five years I have met many men of many nationalities, and I have never known one who in any degree resembles the preux chevalier of your book. The men who have most intimately touched my life have not known the meaning of the word tenderness, and have never had a thought for anyone beyond themselves. You have been more fortunate in your acquaintances, monsieur. 
A dull red crept into the Vicomte's face, and he continued looking at the pen in his fingers. "'Beautiful women, madame,' he said slowly, "'unfortunately provoke in some men all that is basest and vilest in their natures. No man knows to what depths of infamy he may stoop under the stress of a sudden temptation.' "'And the woman pays!' cried Diana vehemently, pays for the beauty God curses her with. The beauty she may hate herself pays until the beauty fades. How much? She pulled herself up short, biting her lips, moved by the sense of the sympathy that had unconsciously been influencing her during the past week, and which had shaken the self-suppression that she had imposed upon herself. Her tongue had run away with her. She was afraid of the confidence that his manner was almost demanding of her. Her pride restrained her from the compassion that her loneliness had nearly yielded to. "'Excuse me,' she said coldly. "'My ideas cannot possibly interest you.' "'On the contrary, you interest me profoundly,' he corrected quickly. She noticed the slight difference in his words and laughed more bitterly than before. "'At what? A subject for vivisection?' Get on your operating coat and bring your instruments without delay. The victim is all ready for you. It will be copy for your next book. Madame! He had sprung to his feet, and she looked up at him miserably, her hand held out in swift contrition. Oh, forgive me. I shouldn't have said that. You haven't deserved it. You have been kind. I am grateful. Forgive me and my rudeness. It must be the heat. It makes one very irritable, don't you think? He ignored her pitiful little subterfuge and raised her outstretched, quivering fingers to his lips. If you will honor me with your friendship, he said, with a touch of the old-world chivalry that was often noticeable in him, my life is at your service. But as he spoke, his voice changed. The touch of her cold fingers sent a rush of feeling through him that for an instant overpowered him. She let her hand lie in his, and for a few moments she avoided his eyes and looked down at the rough head in her lap. Then she met his gaze frankly. "'Your offer is too rare a thing to put on one side. If you will be my friend, as you are Monsignor's friend,' she faltered turning her head away, and her fingers lying in his, trembled slightly. He started and crushed the hand he was holding unknowingly, as the thought was forced on him. Monsignor's friend. He realized that in the last few moments he had forgotten the sheik, had forgotten everything, swept off his feet by an intense emotion that staggered him with its unexpectedness, except the loveliness and helplessness of the girl beside him. His head was reeling. His calmness, his loyalty, his earlier feelings of dispassionate pity had given way to an extreme agitation that was rushing him headlong and threatening to overwhelm him. His heart beat furiously, and he clenched his teeth, fighting to regain his usual sang-froid. The emotional temperament that Diana had divined from his novel had sprung uppermost with a bound, overthrowing the rigid repression of years. The blood beat in his ears as he strove to master himself to crush the madness that had come upon him. He had closed his eyes with a shock of self-revelation. He opened them now, and looked down at her hesitatingly, almost 
cheerfully, clasping her hand closer in his and leaning nearer to her, drawn irresistibly by the intoxication of her nearness. He saw her through a mist that cleared gradually, saw that she was ignorant of the emotion she had awakened in him, and conscious only of his sympathy, had left her hand in his, as she would have left it in her brother's. She was bent low over the hound, her face almost touching his big head, and as Saint-Hubert looked, a glistening tear dropped on Kopec's rough gray neck. She had forgotten him, forgotten even that he was standing beside her, in the one predominant thought that filled her mind. With an immense effort, he got command of himself. Somehow he must conquer this sudden insanity. The loyalty that had hung trembling in the balance reasserted itself, and a self-disgust seized him. He had been within an ace of betraying the man who had been, for twenty years, nearer to him than a brother. She belonged to his friend, and now he had not even the right to question the ethics of the sheikh's possession of her. The calm that he had lost came back to him. The wound would heal, though it might always throb, but he was strong enough to hide its existence even from the jealous eyes that had watched him ceaselessly since his outburst on the night of his arrival. He had been conscious of them daily. Even this morning the sheikh had made every effort short of a direct command to induce him to go with him on the expedition that had taken him away so early. Sure of himself now, he lifted her hands to his lips again, reverently, with a kind of renunciation in his kiss, and laid her hand down gently. He turned away with a smothered sigh and a little pang at her complete absorption. And as he did so, Henri came in quickly. Monsieur le Vicomte, will you come? There has been an accident. With a cry that Saint Hubert never forgot, Diana leapt to her feet. Her face colorless, and her lips framed the word Ahmed, though no sound came from them. She was shaking all over, and the Vicomte put his arm round her instinctively. She clung to him, and he knew with a bitter certainty that the support of a table or a chair would have meant no less to her. "'What is it, Henri?' he said sharply, with a slight movement that interposed himself between Diana and his servant. "'One of the men, Monsieur le Vicomte. His gun burst, and his hand is shattered.' Saint Hubert nodded curtly towards the door and turned his attention to Diana. She sank down on the divan, and, gathering the hound's head in her arm, buried her face in his neck. "'Forgive me,' she murmured her voice muffled in the rough gray hair. It is stupid of me, but he is riding that brute Shaitan today. I am always nervous. Please go. I will come in a minute. He went out without a word. I am always nervous. The tales he had heard of Diana Mayo as he passed through Bistra did not include nerves. His face was set as he ran hurriedly across the camp. Diana sat quite still after he had gone, until the nervous shuddering ceased, until Kopec twisted his head free of her arms and licked her face with an uneasy whine. She brushed her hand across her eyes with a gasp of relief and went out into the bright sunlight with a hound at her heels. The noisy clamor of excited voices guided her to the scene of the accident, and the surrounding crowd opened to let her pass through. 
The wounded man was sitting holding up his hands stoically for Saint Hubert's ministrations with a look of mild interest on his face. In response to Diana's smile and cheery word, he grinned sheepishly with a roll of his fine eyes. Saint Hubert looked up quickly. It is not a pleasant sight, he said doubtfully. I don't mind. Let me hold that, she said quietly, rolling up her sleeves and taking a crimson spattered basin from Henri. Saint Hubert flashed another look at her, marveling at her steady voice and even color when he thought of the white-faced girl who had clung trembling to him ten minutes earlier. Outside of Ahmed bin Hassan, she still retained the fearless courage that she had always had. It was only when anything touched him nearly that the new Diana, with the coward anxiety of love, rose paramount. She watched the vicomte's skillful treatment of the maimed hand with interest. There was a precision in his movement and a deft touch that indicated both knowledge and practice. You are a doctor? Yes, he said, without looking up from his work. I studied when I was a young man and passed all the necessary examinations. It is indispensable when one travels as I do. I have found it invaluable. He took up some dressing that Henri held ready for him, and Diana handed the now unwanted bowl to Gaston. She looked down again at the Arab, whose impassive face showed no sign of any feeling. Does he feel it very much, do you think? she asked the valet. He laughed and shrugged his shoulders. Less than I should, madame. What is really troubling him is the thought of what Monseigneur will say when he hears that Salam was fool enough to buy a worthless gun from one of the servants of the Dutchman who passed here last week. And he added a few teasing words in Arabic, which made Salam look up with a grimace. Saint-Hubert finished adjusting the bandages and stood up, wiping the perspiration from his forehead. "'Will he do all right now?' asked Diana anxiously. I think so. The thumb is gone, as you saw, but I think I can save the rest of the hand. I will watch him carefully, but these men of Ahmed's are in such excellent condition that I do not think there will be any trouble. I am going to ride, said Diana, turning away. It is rather late, but there is just time. Will you come? It was a temptation, and he hesitated, gathering together the instruments he had been using, but prudence prevailed. I should like to, but I ought to keep an eye on Selim, he said, quietly, snatching at the plausible excuse that offered. He found her later, before the big tent, as she was ready to start, and waited while she mounted. If I am late, don't wait for me. Tell Henri to give you your lunch, she called out between the dancer's idiotic prancings. End of section 18 Chapter 7, Part A